0: This is episode 36 with Ashley Adams, a mother. A wife living with an alcoholic husband for years, how she found the strength to navigate this journey and important lessons
1: learned along the way. So much pressure that we put on ourselves to look like the perfect household and the perfect family. The reality is everyone has something. And the more that we can share that, even if it's just one or two people that we trust and we feel like can really be our people, it is so much better for your mental health and for your relationship as a Mm -hmm. whole. Hey moms, are you tired of
0: being tired or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hi, welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. Thank you for tuning in this week. So today, we'll be talking about a specific mom journey. But throughout this journey, you're going to be hearing specific message, which all of us need to hear more often. And that's one, believe in yourself, believe in your potential, and believe that you are stronger than you think you are. And how trying to keep all to yourself what you're going through behind those closed doors And keeping that image of a happy family is not always the right thing to do. I hope the message you get listening to this episode, if you can't relate specifically with her journey. So today's mom is Ashley Adams. She's a mother of three. And today we'll be talking about her book, The Other Side of the Door, Behind the Lies and the Secrets We Keep. And she wrote, after journaling throughout her own journey, how to find strength, how to cope living with an alcoholic husband or partner, protecting your kids, and going through the emotions that you might be feeling, the insecurity, the fear, the shame. She decided to put it together into a book because she couldn't find the resource out there to help her during her tough time. So today I'm sharing her story and she'll be sharing some helpful resources as well. For And I want you to remember the bigger picture here is how believing in yourself and the strength you have regardless of what you decide to do. And of course, all the resources uh, that have helped her that she shared during this episode, you will find on our website, citruslove.com episode 36. And you'll see a place where it's resources mentioned in this episode. Where I sh- share the links that have helped her navigate her journey living with an alcoholic husband and finding her strength and her own path. If you do enjoy these episodes and these conversations, please leave a review. You can go directly to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and scroll down and you, you'll see leave a review. You just have to put a name and you'll be able to leave a review. This helps to get more people listening to our podcast and also sharing these conversations. So without further ado, let's listen in to our conversation. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you for being here on Citrus Love Podcast today. And we're going to talk about kind of sensitive topic and I think it's going to help a lot of women going through or maybe will go through or have gone through similar experiences living with an alcoholic husband or partner. So thank you again for being here and talking about your story and sharing it openly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and share. I want to start with the t-shirt you wore on an Instagram post. It read, life is tough but though are you. And one thing that you told me when I first reached out to you is living with someone that drinking heavily an alcoholic for you was your ex-husband and you said that if women only knew how much stronger they are much more than a lot of us actually give ourselves credit for that was one of the big lessons you wanted to share with women and that stuck with me and I'd like to explore that side a little bit before we get into the specific of your story about strength, woman's strength and a mother's strength?
1: Yeah, I think it's something like in hindsight, I can look back and say, oh my gosh, how did I do everything that I did? but as a mother, you just do it. And I think we all know that we will do whatever we need to do for our kids and for our family. But what I think has been so fascinating to me, as I've talked to more women who have gone through similar things and people who have reached out to me, friends or people I don't know, is like, nobody believes that they could do this if they haven't gone through it yet. Um, Or maybe they're in a, you know, in a difficult marriage right now, or they did go through it, but it took them 15 or 20 years to do it. And I felt like as I was talking to these women, so many of them weren't giving themselves credit for everything that they had done. Even the woman who stayed in a marriage for 18 years and her children are in high school or graduating high school now. That was hard. And that took a lot of strength to keep her family together. Just because she didn't leave does not mean she's not strong. And it it always breaks my heart when someone says, oh, you're so strong to do what you do. I just don't know if I could do it. And they absolutely can. And whether they make the same choices I made or not, there's strength in so many different ways. You know, I mean, keeping it all together, there's strength in not leaving too. Just because I left, that doesn't mean that's what's best for you and your family. And there's so much strength in holding things together too.
0: On the podcast, I focus a lot of strength for mothers, especially this mental strength, because it seems to be one of the most challenging things for us. Right. What kept you strong during this part of your life, living with a alcoholic husband? Looking back, I know you had mentioned music. It made you feel good. You love Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, you know, there are different things at different points, you know, like when I was in my marriage, a lot of it was just the sense of control and I'm very type A and I very much felt like I could control a situation or I could fix him or I could make things better. I could make our family better. But then I also think, you know, as I got into the separation and divorce, it's just this mother's instinct of wanting to protect those kids. My kids were only one and three at the time. And I just wanted to focus and focus and focus on keeping their daily life as normal as possible. And so anytime I was around them, I I really tried to keep it business as usual for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it was after they would go to bed that I would journal. That was one of my big things that I did for myself. And I I couldn't, I couldn't write fast enough for my thoughts to keep up. So I actually typed everything, which ended up being the basis for my book. But I think that was my big thing, just in finding strength of being able to let out those emotions and just feel everything that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. So you've published
0: your book last year called The Other Side of the Door Behind the Lies and Secrets We Keep. You say that one of the big things that push you to write this book is that you couldn't find another book for a mother going through a similar journey with young kids under six years old. What were the books you were finding
1: Yeah, so there's not much on alcoholism, like within the family, there's definitely a lot for the alcoholic, but I think it's a lot tougher for like the family dynamic. But there's a ton of divorce books out there. And they're wonderful. What I found very interesting, and then also kind of isolating is like you said, they don't start until your kids are school age. And I think the reason for that is not because people don't get divorced before their kids are sick. But there's this sense of permanence that kids don't have when they're younger than that. And so divorce is just a really hard topic. And I just don't think it's something that gets addressed a lot. You know, I was at such a loss, and I was only 30 when when we got divorced. And so you know, half my friends hadn't even been married yet, much less gone through a divorce. So you know, it was very isolating. And I didn't really know that I would write a book, but I knew journaling was right for me. I've always enjoyed writing. And I knew that after a while, this was probably something that I could put out there and and hopefully reach People who, who were feeling isolated and, and just get that message out there for people.
0: For the mom, the woman listening today, let's talk about your story so they understand what you went through. Let's go back to the beginning. So you met Jeff, your ex-husband, when you were 20 years old.
1: Correct. I was in college and I was waitressing and he was a few years older than me. So he was um, He was a chef and so he was the chef at the restaurant where I worked. What
0: initially got you two together? Obviously, you were both attracted to one another, but what was in him, like his character his personality, that made you think, "Oh, I really like this guy"?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, so when we met, we had a kind of rocky start, which probably should have been my red flag to <laughs> <I> not <cannot laughs> pursue this any further. Looking back, but once we started dating, it, we just, you know, it was a college relationship, and we just had a lot of fun together. probably also why I didn't recognize a lot of the drinking behaviors, because I was in college and drinking as a college student does. And he, he did a lot with me and my friends. And so, you know, he fit right into my life at school. And, you know, I also got to be with this man who was really four years older than me but 24 versus 20 that felt like oh, so much at the time and here he was with his own place on his own and so adult-like and it was my first real adult relationship and things were just pretty easy for us and we had a, a really just carefree good time together interestingly I did my very last semester of college abroad and I had like every intention that we probably were not going to stay together mm-hmm. and then we ended up staying together I've always had the you know fantasy in my head of you know here's what life looks like you know you go to college you get married you get a job you have kids and so here I was with this guy who you know seemed like a good fit and we were in love and um, so we talked about moving in together but I was pretty traditional I didn't want to do that unless we were on the path to getting married so so we got engaged not even six months after I had graduated and then um, you know ended up married a year later after that. And back there were red flags before you got married what
0: were some of those red flags?
1: So the big one for me, which was confusing and challenging, he had a family member who died when we were engaged. And he took that very, very hard and was drinking a lot. Um, I know that that is a very common way that people deal with grief. And so a lot of it, I just kind of chalked up to that and said, this is not good. This is not healthy. I don't like what I'm seeing, but I'm sure this is temporary and it's going to get better. And it did. But it was the first time looking back that That is very much how his drinking behavior was and how his addiction kind of took over like that. And that was the first time I had really witnessed that, where he would go through, you know, a difficult stage and and have those sort of behaviors.
0: So he wasn't one to talk about his emotions. He just kept it all in and drank.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as much as most men will communicate mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it. I mean, I certainly knew that it was challenging for him and we, we talked about it, but that was just his easier way out to veg out on the couch, watch TV or play video games and, and drink.
0: You wrote that you were afraid of ending up alone if you didn't end up with Jeff. Where do you think this fear stemmed from? Isn't that so sad, right? <laughs> um, you know what? It's common. It's I mean, so a common. lot so of common. people have this fear. So I'm curious to know if you ever made a connection to why
1: I, I mean, I really think I, I'm not like true Southern, I'm I'm in the US, I'm in Virginia. So I'm like right on that borderline of, you know, the people who are getting married at 22. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the first of my friends to get married. So it's not like I was pressured to get married. But it's just kind of like the dream, right? I get to, you know, start my forever so young and be a young mom and do all of these great things. So I don't know that there's anything that I have uncovered for my why behind that other than it, you know, just what you see a lot in TV and movies and
0: Mm -hmm. kind of
1: what I just always grew up and and hoped I would have. I'd have a great job, a great husband, great family Mm -hmm. and have it all.
0: You said there were two things that mattered above all to you about him, that he made you laugh and that he would be a great dad one day and the rest you'd work out along the way. Do you think you were a bit naive thinking that the rest would work itself out? just because of the
1: dream you had, the plan,
0: being so young?
1: It's interesting. I think that if I had met him in school and he was also a student, I think things might have been different. What was challenging for me getting married so young is Jeff had just a different lifestyle than me. I was very driven, very, like I mentioned, very type A, straight A student all through school. That was not his mindset. And I think if we had had similar backgrounds in that sense and kind of, then had similar drives and desires for our futures, like everything working itself about probably would have. Um, but I think our backgrounds were very different. And at 22, 23, those weren't things that I had experienced in life. And looking back, like, Yes. So naive to think everything else would work out. However, I still think laughter is so important in a marriage. And I think being a phenomenal parent and a great dad is so important. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, still two very important qualities that I look for in a partner. So I still think those are true. But as far as everything else working out, yes, probably a little naive. Mm -hmm.
0: Were there anyone that warned you? Were your parents worried? Did they express a concern when you said you wanted to get married or friends or anyone else?
1: No. And it's funny, you know, as I talk to people today, there were certainly people who were like, yeah, I wasn't totally sure, but, you know, he seemed like a good guy. Or, you know, mm-hmm. my parents obviously had concerns, you know, of his ability to support me and his drive and desire and, you know, all of those kinds of things. But they also had taken him in and loved him as their own as well. We generally had support. I was the one who, as I stood there on my wedding day, was a little nervous, which again, looking back, it talked about another way to have strength, someone who can walk out before they get married. That mm-hmm. takes so much gut to, to recognize that what you're doing is not the right path. And that was something that I certainly didn't have the, the gut to do.
0: Mm -hmm. So you got married, uh, you're 22. He had started drinking before that. After you got married, when did things really accelerate and thinking about him being an alcoholic, like having a drinking problem?
1: It's funny, and I don't even think of those two as the same um, realization. So having a drinking problem. And then the whole alcoholic, I I still think in my head, I don't know that I really believed he was an alcoholic until I walked in on him drinking first thing in the morning. And that's when I realized, wow, you really have no control. This is a disease. Before then, he was just always person who would embarrass me at parties. And I would always be a little nervous of what Mm -hmm. he might say and what he might do. And so, you know, that's kind of how I, I thought about it. And um I think there were certainly like instances that we would have, but I think the first ones that really stick out in my mind are during my pregnancy with our first child. And he had a really hard time. He was very excited to become a parent, but just had a very hard time with, you know, my body changing and the realization of what was about to happen in his life. And his drinking escalated a lot. You know, there, we had an incident. He was never violent, like putting his hands on me violent. But there was one night where he got mad and punched a wall going up the steps and put a hole in our wall. And we had a run-in when my daughter was two weeks old. And I had to lock myself in a bedroom. Um, to to get away from him. So, you know, there were instances and and that second one right after she was born, that was actually our first trigger where I was like, okay, now there's another person's life at stake. And we immediately went into um, some couples counseling after that. Let me
0: go back. What was the time lapse between you getting married and becoming pregnant? I know you had a miscarriage.
1: Had a miscarriage. Before that? that. After about three years. And then um, my daughter was born about four years after.
0: Four years Mm -hmm. in. Okay. And do you think you'd still be with them if you didn't have kids? Because it seems to be once you had kids and you feared for their life that you kind of took his drinking more seriously.
1: Yes, for sure. I, um, you know, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but one of the big things that really convinced me to, like, not go back on my decision to leave him was, because this was so secretive, no one knew, other than him being, like, the embarrassing guy at a party. No one knew this was really an issue until until it blew up <laughs> in mm-hmm. everyone's face. Um, but. When I would have those conversations with friends, finally, about everything that had been going on, there were multiple friends of mine who said to me, my mom was an alcoholic or my dad was an alcoholic. I wish my mom or I wish my dad had left them. And it was unanimous. And just hearing them say that to me and, you know, talk about the things that they went through being raised by an alcoholic, I just knew I wasn't going to do that to my kid and I couldn't do it. And no matter how hard it was, this was the decision I was going to stick with and we were going to do.
0: Hmm. Wow. This just shows how important it is to share these stories because it just helps others to open up about their own struggles because a lot of it is left behind the door. You never know what they're going through. It's kept like a secret.
1: Yeah, even your very best friends. I mean, my very best friend only knew the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, my friends were there for me and my family was there for me when I was suddenly on my own with a not even one-year-old baby. But it's just so sad that so many of us are just kind of on our own because we don't want to embarrass ourselves. We want our marriage to look right you know, recently, I don't know if you follow Rachel Hollis, but recently she and Dave Hollis announced that they were getting divorced. And, you know, she's very big in the US. And, you know, I think one of the things I found so interesting about them is, you know, they have their podcast that they do together. And they talk about having this extraordinary marriage. And it's been interesting to watch some of the backlash for them because they exude this perfect marriage. But it just goes to show you, you you never know what is going on. And, and I hope and pray that they had friends and family that they were able to, you know, consult and talk to and, and feel like they could get things out because... Mm-hmm. That's so much pressure that we put on ourselves to look like the perfect household and the perfect family when yeah. the reality is everyone has something. And the more that we can share that, even if it's just one or two people that we trust and we feel like can really be our people, it is so much better for your mental health and for your relationship as a mm-hmm. whole. You
0: shared that the drinking was part of the problem hundred percent of the time, but that he didn't see it as a problem, which usually doesn't surprise. What did he think he was actually doing or how he was when he was drinking and how was he different for you? Yeah,
1: so one of the things that we did early on after Peyton, my oldest, was born was we rationalized drinking. There was like good drinking and bad drinking, which I think in hindsight was just a slippery slope and, and really set us up for failure. But if he drank just beer, he was fine. Like, I don't want him to go and drink a case of beer every day, but he wasn't mean. He was still like the fun Jeff. We I enjoyed being around him. But as soon as we introduced whiskey into the mix, that's when he was like the mean drunk or the one who would pass out on the couch all night long so after she was born we kind of rationalized hey you're not like the best version of yourself when you drink whiskey so maybe we cut that out and for a while he did and and you know he would switch to just beer and these were the the things that you know kept us together for several more years because for the most part things were pretty good he would have slip-ups and that's when we would have like big explosions that we would have but overall things were okay then so because of those reasons, he would feel like he had this under control, it wasn't a big deal, or he would drink like a handle of bourbon in a week and and think that that was okay, because he would rationalize it out by like x number of drinks per day. And he like was just very methodical about he was claiming he was having which the math never added up. But you know, he just he would put stories in his head that would make everything okay. And you said he started
0: drinking regularly at 745am in the morning?
1: So that was when I discovered it. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, you are an alcoholic. So when my son was born, we we were separated within a year of that. But my entire pregnancy with my second child, like he was not present for any of it. He was, you know, a jerk to my mom in the hospital when I delivered, like it was just it was a mess. And and that was really like the beginning of the end for us. And so I could see a lot of behaviors um, coming out that I knew were like alcoholic tendencies. But he had also been on um, a lot of anti-anxiety medications. And, you know, I think anxiety and alcohol, they go hand in hand a lot for people. And so he would always explain away his behaviors and blame it on the medicine. And then when I would Google it, it made sense like they were side effects. So I kept trying to like explain it away and and try and believe the best in him. Um, And then it wasn't until I walked in on him pouring his drink into a soda can first thing in the morning that I realized that this is what had been happening every day.
0: (laughs) So no one knew what was going on. Yeah. I have to ask you why knowing this, you still wanted to have a child with him before you actually got pregnant.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I walked in on him, that was the end of our relationship for the most um, part. after my daughter was born, things were good. And and when things had been good for a couple of years, that's when we decided to try for number two, um, mm-hmm. we moved out of our house. And we moved into, again, following the dream and the path, we moved into like, what was going to be our forever home and you know, a nice little cul-de-sac uh, in the suburbs. And, and we were in a good place. And it was it was almost like the pregnancy once again. And I talk about this in the book a little bit, but like, I just don't think babies and him were meant to gel. It, it mm-hmm. clearly was a big stressor for him. And it he just he became someone else and where he kept it together mostly during my first pregnancy this one like right off the bat was really challenging
0: when you say things were good for a couple years how does good look like
1: so it's interesting so and i don't know if this is typical of like all alcoholics but we had a very like high low passionate relationship where we would be awesome for a couple months and then we'd have a blow up that would you know result in a big fight or wouldn't talk for a couple days, and then things would be good again. So you just have these really high, low moments. And so for me, you know, as someone who it's funny, I like did not believe in divorce prior to going through my own. And now I have like a whole different opinion of it. For me, as someone who didn't want to believe in divorce, I've focused and focused and focused on those good moments. And I use that to pull me through when things weren't so good. You kept thinking about the good. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. kept thinking I could fix him and make it better. (laughs) Mm. Did you ever have
0: the thought, oh, he'll change. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Of course. He has me. I will be his good
1: influence. We can make better.
0: (laughs) So you went to some AA meetings, you went with him and you went alone as well, right?
1: I, yep. went to two AA meetings with him and then I went to what's called Al-Anon, which is like for the partners or for the family members, for the friends of the alcoholic. It's called Al-Anon. And uh, you
0: shared that it impacted you more than it did to him. So how were you impacted by these meetings?
1: Oh my goodness. Well the alcoholics anonymous most of those are people sharing their stories and, you know, talking about, oh, I'm thirty days sober, I'm five years sober but a lot of them in the, in the ones that I went to, and I'm sure a lot of them are structured differently and have different topics and themes, but it was just hearing people talk about their rock bottom or hearing people talk about what they'd been through to become sober. And it was in that moment that I wasn't sure that he would be able to do it because those people in those meetings were so strong. We talk about another way to be strong and recognize your strength. Like if there is a mother who's an alcoholic and is fighting every single day to be sober for her kid, like there is nothing more strong than that. These people in these meetings who are just dying for drink are sitting there and taking it moment by moment to get through it and be the best version of themselves for themselves and their loved ones. And you thought that Jeff would never hit rock bottom? I mean, of course, I hoped we would get to a place where he would realize what he had done to himself. Um, I knew we were not there yet, because he still had me as his windfall. He still had his fairly easy life, so to speak. So I knew we weren't there yet. But my hope was that he could just see what his life could be like if he was able to get sober and like just looking at those people around him. But I could tell it wasn't resonating with him the way it did with me.
0: He also went to rehab, right? The Rehab Center for alcoholic. I know how that went, but shared how that
1: experience was for him and if it actually helped him or not. Gosh, you know, I, I thought it was helping him until the very last night he was there. We we talked on the phone a lot, and it's funny. My my sister in law is a recovering alcoholic, been sober now for gosh, probably almost fifteen years. She's incredible. Um, And I remember when he went to rehab, she said, Ashley, I really wouldn't be sending him letters or in because I was like trying to rally people around him and sending him cards of support. And she said, I really would just let him be by himself for 30 days with no contact from any of you guys. And I just didn't have it in my heart to do that. I wanted to support him. So I always think back about that and wish that I could see if things would have been different had I done that, but I didn't. So it is what it is. So we we rallied around him while he was in rehab. I went up every single weekend. It was like a four hour drive. Um, And I went every single weekend and took one kid each weekend. And like, I would make, you know, like a fun trip out of it with the kids. And they offered different classes to learn about alcoholism and you know how to work with your partner, so I, I learned a lot and I got a lot out of that. And he seemed like he was doing great. You know, his counselors were always praising him and talking about how he was leading small groups and acting as a mentor to newer people coming in. And and his brother and I were like, wow, well maybe this will be like a new career for him, and he can be you know some sort of counselor for for folks. And um, so we were really hopeful during that time because um, I knew that this was it. Like if rehab didn't work, then we were over. And then. He had made a comment the last night before I was going to pick him up. And I had said, you know, have you figured out which AA meeting you're going to go to this weekend? Because one of the things that they told us was they need to come out of rehab with a plan, know exactly what they're going to do. And his response was, oh, I'm going to take the weekend off and I'll start Monday. And I knew right then that nothing had resonated and he was not going to succeed.
0: Do you think it was because he didn't think he had a problem or it was yeah, Yeah.
1: he would talk about people in rehab who didn't want to be there or didn't think they were there kind of implying that it was resonating for him and he knew he needed it. But I think he was actually one of those people. And he was one of those guys who was having those conversations at night, like, I don't need to be here. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You obviously learned a lot about what to
0: do and what to say and how to be around an alcoholic. Can you share some tips, I guess, for the woman, the partner, the wife listening who might be going through a similar experience with her partner, her husband? Because I know it's tough when the actual person doesn't want to accept it, so it's difficult to make changes. You had mentioned don't make them feel watched, like how many, how much they're drinking or. And another thing you shared that I didn't know is how alcoholics, they tend to get stuck at the age they start drinking. And you said for Jeff, it was at 15 years old, like little things like that. And obviously it takes a lot of courage to stand up to someone who is an alcoholic. So what are things you can say to that woman listening that might be helpful for her
1: I mean, I think you mentioned, you know, two things that are just interesting facts, I think, about like what alcohol does to your brain. Like I still drink and I still drink in front of my kids and as my my oldest is almost 10. And so our conversations evolve a little bit more each year. But for her, you know, she asked why I can drink and why she can't. And so one of the things that we talk about is that brain development and how, you know, alcohol is actually a poison that you're putting in your body. What's different is when you're a child, it impacts your brain differently than when you're an adult. And that's why you can't drink till you're 21. So just being very factual with her of like why it's safe for me to drink and and why you'll see me have a glass of wine with dinner um, but you don't see me have five glasses of wine with dinner so very basic things there You, you know I think the thing that I would say to someone who is in a marriage or with a partner and and not sure what to do is number one don't enable. I mean, I think that is the toughest thing. And what's even tougher is when I was done enabling, his parents weren't done enabling. And so he was able to leave me and go live with them and still not be able to hit rock bottom. And I, can't, I couldn't control that. I could only control myself and, and how I responded to things. And I just knew that I was not going to be a part of not letting him try to get to rock bottom and make his way back up to the top. I mean, once he moved out of the house, you couldn't
0: enable him. He he wasn't living with you. But when they're still in the house, how can you not enable him? Like, do you just stop taking care of them?
1: So there's, I think there's a couple of things and, and it depends on how much you're willing to do. So mm-hmm. towards the end, I stopped having wine in the house. I stopped having liquor in the house. He still had his own that he hides and he would, and literally after he had moved out, I found holes in a couch upstairs that he hid like bottles of alcohol in. So they'll still have it, but he's not going to get it from me. But what I would have done differently, we had two different places where we watched TV. He had his little man cave where he would watch TV or play games and I wouldn't have done that. And I don't do that with my, I'm I'm remarried now. And I don't do that with my husband today. We always sit down together and we watch TV together. Our evenings are together so that we don't have that isolated time. Not to say we don't, you know, go out and do our own thing, but I think it's so important to have that alone time together after the kids are in bed. And then I think just having them take, you know, more accountability, like I managed everything in our household. I was the, the breadwinner in our household, which, you know, ultimately made it easier for me to leave. However, the one thing that I would say that I, I, hear often from women um, who are a stay-at-home parent or work part-time or don't make the majority of the household income, and they're like, well, I could never do this. You absolutely can I went through a support group as I was going through my divorce, and three of my very good friends to come out of that were actually stay-at-home or part-time working parents, um, and they all did it, and they're thriving today. It's been, you know, six years since we all went through our divorces together, but, you know, one was able to rent a townhome, one bought a house that, you know, her parents helped her buy, and then another one rented a house for a while, and then was able to buy a house after her divorce was finalized with some of that alimony money. So everyone was able to get through it, and I think there's, an extra level of strength that it takes if you are the stay at home parent, but mm-hmm. take your time and, and build what you need to build to help yourself, you know, feel safe and comfortable to to make that move if that's what you choose.
0: Yeah, that's some good things to look out for and think about. Did you start blaming yourself at any point for your husband's tendency to drink? Like maybe it's me, maybe I'm doing something wrong. How was it for you? Did you have that or it, he he never blamed you?
1: Oh, I mean, everything was always my fault, but I didn't, I, I knew he was crazy to think. I think if, if I hadn't seen signs of that drinking when we'd been engaged, then maybe I would have thought that more, but I was able to usually take a step back and, and kind of rationalize that not in the moment, but afterwards, I like I mentioned that, you know, I, I journaled throughout our marriage. I only journaled during the difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, which I wish I had journaled more of the happier times because I actually find that as a big challenge today where I can't, the further time passes, it's harder for me to remember all of our really good times, which mm-hmm. makes me sad when my kids ask me stories and I have a harder time recalling all the happy times we had but I could certainly look at those journal entries and go backwards you know I would recognize the patterns and the behaviors that he had and I knew that they were not related to me they were fully baked in in his drinking and that would be the stem of you know whatever the cause was. You
0: mentioned that no one knew for the longest time about what was happening at home Usually when we don't say something, we know how people are going to react or what they're going to comment on. Why didn't you mention anything maybe to your friends? You say they didn't even know the entire story. Wasn't there like one person who knew everything?
1: No one. I remember one particular really bad fight. I had a whole email drafted to my best friend and I was going to tell her and then I never hit that. I decided to wait until the morning and then by the morning I didn't want to send it anymore. And part of why everyone was so surprised when I finally told people is because Jeff's an awesome guy. Like he was one of those just jovial, happy, fun people to be around. And I'll never forget my neighbor when she first discovered everything. She's like, gosh, I really miss Jeff. I'm so sad he's not around. He's such a great guy. And I'm like, well... Thanks for the support. (laughs) I'm sorry he's not here. (laughs) But that's just who he was. Like, he was just so Mm -hmm. likable. And I think that's what, you know, I don't want to take that away from people. I didn't want people to not think that about him. Mm -hmm. Because then that's also a reflection on me, too, right? I Mm -hmm. want people to think that I'm with this great guy, not with this guy that, you know, has all of these issues that are then causing us to have all of these issues.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How was he as a dad? So we talk about him when with babies, he wasn't comfortable, but you did leave the kids with him a couple hours, weekends here, bring them to daycare. Did you worry at all leaving your kids with him knowing that he did drink? So
1: not until my son was born. With Peyton, he was an awesome dad with her they would play together all the time. I was not blessed with the gift of patience. I cannot sit on the floor with a child for, you know, an hour or two and, you know, play the same thing over and over again. But Mm -hmm. he could do that. And he was Mm -hmm. great with her. And they had such a good bond, which made it even harder when we had such an abrupt departure for her. But he was he was a wonderful dad with her. And Bedtime was his. He owned bedtime, put her to bed every single night. Um, I did go out of town one time for a girl's weekend when Ryan was a baby, but he did not stay with Jeff. He stayed with my parents. Mm. I felt comfortable with Peyton because she was old enough that she could kind of speak up and say what she needed to him, but I didn't trust him with the baby. And did he work at all No, he always had a very steady income right up until my son was born. That was really when things started falling apart. And, you know, it's sad after the fact when there are people who knew things were going on, but they don't want to tell you. So I would say a few months before our son was born, he lost his job. And he told me it was because they had just had this merger and a new company had taken over. So pretty much they were just letting go of everyone from the previous company. And so it all sounded plausible. I had no reason to suspect otherwise. And then come to find out like a year or two later, people would would tell. Oh, yeah, Jeff used to go out into his car on break and he would drink. And, you know, they just talked about his poor behavior at work. And so I'm sure that's actually why he got fired, not for the reasons that he shared with me. But these are the mm-hmm. things that no one wants to tell you that I had a girlfriend whose husband was apparently doing drugs during the end of their marriage. He was also an alcoholic and, and she had no clue. And she said her neighbors told her after the fact, they said, oh, yeah, I used to see him go into the mailbox and pull pot out of the mailbox that, a, that someone would deliver for him. <laughs> she was like, I cannot believe you wouldn't tell me these things. But it, it's hard to have those conversations with people um, and people would just prefer to stay out of it altogether. That's what I want to ask because I mean, people say it's not my
0: place or so I'm not going to say anything. But for you, you would prefer someone tell you what they've seen and witnessed than just keep their mouth shut and and wait until you eventually notice it. Is that... I guess
1: so, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I can't say how I would have responded. For me, like, it would have made sense if I was someone who had been completely oblivious and didn't know something was going on, then mm-hmm. I probably would have had a harder time. Kind of like if you were to tell someone that their husband's having an affair and they think that he's this loving, perfect husband, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to be super happy and may not believe you. Um, so I think it. I think it's still a slippery slope and hard to do, but probably in the end worth it, especially as you think about something that could be that destructive. Mm -hmm. So when was it
0: enough for you? Too many strikes and you asked him to leave?
1: When, When I walked in on him drinking, he immediately got sober. He lasted six days. That was his longest sober stretch, I believe. Um, I gave him basically three strikes and you're out after that. Um, And he did not even last 30 days. And that was when his parents wanted him to go to rehab. I knew he wasn't ready, but it was my insurance. then I had to find him a place so that they wouldn't just pick something that wasn't covered. And that's when he went there. So I I decided to to be supportive throughout that. And I knew that if he messed up a single time after rehab, that it was over. And he was out of the house within a week coming Mm -hmm. home from rehab. And how did he react? So I guess technically I gave him a couple tries because the first time, it was the first time I had allowed him to pick up our son from the babysitter. And I got home and he was literally drunk. And he said, I know Peyton's going to rat me out, but I didn't have her car seat." So she rode home without a car seat, and I think she was almost maybe three and a half. And so I told him I was like, "You need to get upstairs and go to bed right now. I can't look at you because I didn't know what to do with him." It's, you know, six thirty, and he's drunk, and um, so I just sent him up to bed, and he was passed out. The next day, the same thing happened, and instead of telling him to just go up and go to bed, I said, "Go up and go to bed, or get out of my house." And he decided to get out of the house, and that was really the pivotal moment that changed everything for me because I I don't know what I was thinking but I decided to call the police and tell them that a drunk driver was about to get on the road which I don't even know if that's something you can really do but I did (laughs) it (laughs) <laughs> and, um, he was still in the house getting ready to leave. And he actually grabbed the phone from me while I was in the middle of calling, which is a crime. So just because of a couple of simple, like in the moment things where I just didn't think and I just called 911, I was able to basically move everything in our divorce into a domestic Court as opposed to like a civil court for divorce. And he then suddenly had charges brought against him. His alcoholism was then like admissible and a known fact. There just ended up being several instances right after that where he had charges against him, both related to alcohol and um, abuse, because he had grabbed my hair when I had called 911. So he had actually gotten charged with assault as well. Which looking back, I'm like, wow, that was in the grand scheme of all the things that we had gone through. That was probably not the moment looking back. I should have called 911. There were a couple instances before then where I probably should have done that as opposed to that one. But that one changed everything for me because it is so difficult. And I think that's the hardest part for divorce Um, when alcohol is involved. It is so hard to prove it in court and to really be able to fight for your kids the way you want to fight for them. And Mm -hmm. I was very, very fortunate in that case because I had all of the evidence right in front of the judge to be able to protect my kids and get full custody
0: which was great for you. So you eventually got custody and child support for both your kids at the time. And you mentioned you were really grateful at the amazing support you receive even from people outside your family, receiving gift cards, letters of love. You, you had someone pay for maid service, you mentioned mm-hmm. the book. So talk about the importance of building your tribe here because at this point, did you have what you call your 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 tribe, people that were there for you, you had support and that helped you
1: afterwards? Yeah. So I think immediately I just had a huge outpouring of love from friends and family. That starts to fade. Obviously people want to immediately rush and help you, which is wonderful. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, where you get the meals delivered and you get gift cards. And I had a friend who got me maid service for the summer, which was single-handedly the best thing anyone did for me. <laughs> um but, you know, then people go back to their lives, uh, you know, as, as they do. And so then you're kind of left on your own again. And, and you can reach out to people and you can ask for help, but that's a little harder and you know, your emotional capacity is so low at that point to, to ask for things that you need. And, and you really still at that point need people to be just coming to you and offering things for you. But it was at that point that I had um, joined a support group for divorce, which was really hard for me to do. Again, I mentioned, I, you know, I was only 30 at the time. And in my head, people that get divorced are like, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And I would feel so out of place if I went to the group and I dragged my feet and I went anyways, I figure I'll, I'll go one time and try. And I mentioned that, you know, I came out with several very good friends out of it. Um, I was still the youngest in the group, but not by much. And I was able to get so much value out of that. Even if I didn't want to talk, it didn't matter. Just being able to hear people who whose story was totally different, but totally the same. And mm-hmm. that, that in itself just helps so much with your healing process, too. Mm-hmm.
0: After your ex left the house, I don't know the time frame here, if it was a few months, he eventually died at his home at the age of 36 from alcoholism. You say that at the end of the day, kids need two things to survive, to know they are loved and to know they are taken care of. And I know that your eldest, I mean, even before, after he had left the house, she had a tougher time because he would always put her to bed. So what helped her during this time when he was not at home, when he was not present? And now what are you telling your two kids about their father?
1: Yeah. Oh, it was. So it was so hard um, because she, you're falling apart and you've got to keep it together for this little tiny people that you're responsible for. And mm-hmm. all she knows is that, wow, every single day my dad was the one who put me to bed and now he's not here. And I don't want you to put me to bed, mom. I want him to read me a book. I want him to lay with me. She had gotten used to that when he was in rehab. So like we had that, but she also knew he was coming back and he would be putting her to bed soon. When that ended up not being the case and we separated for real, um, I told her that he was going to go live with her grandparents and, and he was going to work there. We at at that age, again, I mentioned like they don't really have the permanence at that, that young age of what's happening. So we actually focused a lot on work when he was in rehab. That's what we said. He had gone away for work for a while and he would be back. And so we actually said he had moved um, in with his parents and was going to work. From there, and he wasn't going to live with us anymore. And I kind of kept it at that. I, I mentioned, you know, a lot of it is, you know, what's age appropriate, and it's answering exactly what they would asked and not giving more information than that, um, mm-hmm. because you're just going to confuse them. Or what they're asking is a totally innocent question, and you go and give some serious answer, and then they get even more confused and ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you recently had on Barbara who talked about parenting through crisis. And I think a couple of things that she really nailed that that I really clung to were this idea of optimism, just being really positive around her whenever I could. You know, my, my youngest was only a year old at the time, so he he didn't know any better. But for her, so just being super positive. And then also, it was so important to me, probably too important, but it was so important for me to keep her life as normal as possible. Otherwise, I wanted our, our routines at home to stay the same. I wanted her home to stay the same. The home was so important to me. And it took me mm-hmm. a while to come to the like realization that, okay, I think it's okay if we move. We will be okay if we have to go to a new place, but I held on for as long as I could there. And then just focusing on, you know, at three, at three years old, like her grandparents were everything to her. My parents live in the same town. So she would get a lot of extra sleepovers. She would get a lot of extra play dates, just a lot of like fun things to distract her from that. Mm -hmm. That's great that you were
0: able to keep her life as normal, I guess, as possible and and fun. And during that time. Do you still fear for your kids' tendency towards addiction because of of their father?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's 50% in there and pretty open about that now not with my middle. He, you know, he's almost seven at this point, and he still doesn't really ask questions. But for her, we talk about it a lot. She's a very curious kid. She asks a lot of questions. Um, she's very empathetic, which I don't know if that's a result of, you know, what she's been through, or if that would have always been her nature. But she worries about other people a lot. I see that emotion in her. And it makes me like just want to love on her even more, but also teach her to stand up for herself because I fear for her um, like ability to to stand up to peer pressure as she gets older. yeah so you
0: were a single mom was it a a year or how long before you met your your husband your current husband uh... yeah
1: I did not date at all while I was separated so that was like a little over a year and then I met Josh like about eight months or so after so about two years before I met him and he came into Mm -hmm. our lives Mm -hmm. And how did
0: you know he was different? Because one thing I hear often is, you know, some women have this pattern, they repeat dating the same type, like you like a funny guy and this guy's funny. So it's going to be great. So how did you know that it would be different with him?
1: So I knew that fact too. And I purposely (laughs) like everything Um, opposite. And I will say, you know, there's a lot of people who, don't want to do therapy or don't want to do support groups, but gosh, I learned so much through the support group I went through. It was, it was video based. You didn't have to talk all that much unless you wanted to, but week after week, I learned so many helpful things. And I actually went and led that group two more times after I went through it myself as a participant. So I fully attribute that to a lot of my healing and growth and being able to recognize things that I did wrong in my previous relationship that we're going to make this next one right. But when I met Josh, I mean, he had a great job, great education, um, never married, no kids. Those were those were things that were important to me coming in. And not that I would have turned down someone who did have another relationship or a child. But I had talked to a child psychologist at one point early on in the process. And that was one of her pieces of advice, actually, was it will be easier for your family if there are no other like extraneous things happening if it's just him coming in if he's someone who was raised by great parents and had a great relationship with his parents my ex had a very strained relationship with his parents and so seeing how much josh um, loves his parents and how close he is with his family like that was really important to me and just seeing how respectful he was he was he had a lot of really positive traits that i was looking for in a partner It's funny, I've gone from being judgmental about divorce to being like eagle eye on people's drinking behaviors and trying to just, is there a problem going on that I'm not seeing? Does someone have an issue? Is there something that I can intervene with? And and I'd like, I probably focus too much on people's drinking, but um, I think that's just a side effect of what I've been through. Like if if there was any trauma I had, it's a lot of that trust. I mean, even with Josh, I, I teased him up until he said yes on our wedding day. I just kept waiting for something to make him run because Mm. what sane man wanted to be with me and two kids and raise them I couldn't believe that someone would want to make that their life and I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop so I always tease him about that
0: and now you have a son together he's one yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, what are some important lessons learned from all of this that you can share with again the mom the woman uh, listening at home how to know what's right during a situation like this if it's right to leave if it's right to stay
1: I think you know the answer of if it's right or not the answer is can you get over those fears and I know before this call you had asked me about like what are some of the fears you had I mean I had every fear in the book. I was afraid to share my kids if we got divorced. I didn't want them to go to his house overnight. I didn't want to share them 50-50. I was afraid to leave and be alone for the rest of my life. I was afraid to be divorced with two kids and know how to raise them. How would I mess up their lives? Like there's so many things to be afraid of, but there's also so many people and resources and things to help mitigate that and make it easier for you all that whatever you think is the right thing to do is probably the right thing to do. And Mm. the fears will work themselves out. Everything is scary in the moment. And to be able to look back and see what you've overcome and see what you've been through and see how your kids are doing just fine today. I mean, I look at my very small sample sizes of my divorced friends. Now, I am the only one of my group that has since remarried, but all of them are in beautiful, healthy lives with their kids. One of them is in a serious relationship. The other two are so focused just on their kids, which is perfectly right for them. But they're happy again. They're in great places. They don't regret their decisions. It's just hard in the moment and knowing Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's going to be hard in the moment and making that decision, I think is really important.
0: One thing I heard before is, well, the day he hits me, that's when I'll leave. I mean, I've never been through a situation like this with a partner, so I, I can't talk from experience, but you, what could you say to this?
1: I think the day that happens, you're probably too embarrassed and you're not going to do it. And I only say that because even though Jeff never hit me the day that we had our our one altercation where I look back and I think, why didn't I call the cops when my daughter was two weeks old and he was screaming at us and chasing us into the point where I had to lock myself in a room. It didn't even cross my mind to call the police. I don't know why I'm sure embarrassment and fear of what the repercussions of that would be, but it didn't even cross my mind. And I was in multiple situations where while he didn't hit me, They weren't healthy situations. And I think as you get used to those, you do rationalize them. And maybe you do what I do, where you focus more on the positive and you use those positive times to get you through the harder times.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Any resources
0: you recommend for someone going through a similar situation, apart from your book, of course, (laughs) because you you mentioned a couple books in the story, not directly related to alcoholism, but that help you yourself being stronger and just going through this.
1: Yeah, I mean, in my book, I talk a lot about um, Glennon Doyle, who's an author and an activist now, but she, at the time when I was going through all this, she had just come out with her first book, and I was a huge fan of it, and um, called Carry On Warrior, and she's a recovering alcoholic, and so there was a lot within that book that I could recognize and understand from his perspective, and I thought that was really helpful, and then also just seeing her strengths and, and hearing her funny stories and how... You know, she would go through really hard times, but there was humor behind it. So I'm just a really big fan of hers and also her idea of not being ashamed of what you're going through. And um, Brene Brown is great at that today, too, as as a great resource for someone who can encourage you to get beyond the shame and just be willing to share your story, I think, are are the big things. You know, for little ones, a couple of the things that I love, five love languages of children. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's obviously the five love languages that we're familiar with for adults, but they have a children's version, too. Um, And that one really helped me understand my kids a little bit more and and know how to respond to them. And then just like even just a movie for your kids, like Inside Out was a great one for me, um, the Disney movie, because at that age, it just gave me a really good way to talk to my daughter about what she was feeling. And so she could tell me when she was feeling anger or when she was feeling joy or feeling sadness. And it just it was a very concrete way for us to talk.
0: Hmm, those are great. I'll put a link to those with um, the episode. Definitely. That's going to be helpful. So where can listeners find more about you, your website, all your social handles, uh, your book? Give us all the details.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm pretty active on Instagram. My Instagram handle is the other side of motherhood. And I'm always happy to, to DM there as well. And my book is available in Kindle and paperback on Amazon, and then also in paperback at Barnes and Noble as well but you can probably be there. And then I do have a Facebook group as well that I haven't really filled up too much, but, but you can, there's a link um, within my Instagram to that as well. Perfect. And so I have one last question I ask
0: everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you
1: found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? You know, I think for me, you know, I mentioned I'm not someone who's great at sitting on the floor for hours at a time playing with little kids and doing things. So mm-hmm. for me, it's finding the little moments of something that we both enjoy. So whether that's working on a puzzle together, or my daughter, I've gotten her into Taylor Swift. So you know, we look <laughs> do a lot of that together. Um, you know, just just having those moments together and cultivating those, because as soon as we find one thing that they love, they're onto something else, and those moments that we had are gone. So just kind of knowing I can savor the little moments um, because they're going to pass and they're going to be gone and focusing on those moments that are good. Even when things are hard. Thank you for listening to another episode
0: of citrus love, keeping motherhood inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening, two, three, four, five, six stars, whatever you feel reflect podcasts this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode and thank you so much for listening talk to you next time bye guys